I believe that if we have confidence in the future, it will enable us to live with faithfulness in the present. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 is where we're gonna be. If we've not gotten a chance to meet yet, my name is Luke Proctor. I get to serve here as one of the ministers at PCC. And together with you this morning, I just wanna ask a question that I think most of us have wrestled with at some point or another, and it's quite simply this. What happens after we die? Now, what happens after we die? Now, most people, even today, believe in some kind of an afterlife. Really, wherever you go around the world, regardless of religion or worldview, most people believe that there is something after this life. What happens after we die? It's the question we ask. Um, some of you will remember the final years of the Soviet Union. And during its heyday, the USSR was this bastion of secular humanism. It was a society founded on atheistic principles. Well, back when George H.W. Bush was the vice president of the United States, he represented the U.S. at the funeral of the former Soviet leader, Leonid Brezhnev. And Brezhnev, of course, was an atheist, and he helped lead this atheist regime. But Bush describes witnessing a silent act of protest at Brezhnev's funeral. It was this radical yet simple act of civil disobedience actually performed by Brezhnev's widow. You see, as Brezhnev's widow was standing there by his casket and grieving, just before the soldiers closed the casket, she reached in and she made the sign of the cross on her husband's chest. In this final moment, it was as if she was saying that she hoped her husband was wrong that maybe, just maybe, there was something beyond this life, that this existence isn't all there is, and maybe this life beyond was best represented by a guy named Jesus who died on the cross. And so she was wondering the question that we're asking today, what happens after we die? And today we're gonna look at what the Bible has to say about this. Scripture is our authority for such things like this. And so we're not gonna be able to tackle nearly all of this today, but I'm gonna climb up on my soapbox for a minute and give you my shameless plug. If you wanna dive deeper into topics like this and others, I'd encourage you to sign up for Equip You when it comes around again in January. Equip You is this online learning format that we offer as a church. It's four semesters long, but you take it one at a time. You can go through it on your own time at your own pace, but you go through it with a cohort of other people here at the PCC family. And it helps you dive deep into what we believe and why we believe it and how to own and live out your faith. Um, and actually, uh, starting this week, we have our very first crop of people who finished all four semesters of Equip You. Go ahead and give them a round of applause. Yeah. It's a big deal. This is a big deal. It's a huge time commitment. We set the bar really high, but I think if you talk to any one of those people, uh, they'd tell you it was worth every second they put in, and we pray that God will use Equip You to make our church more like Him. So sign up again in January when it comes back around. But today, for our discussion on what happens after we die, we're gonna be drawn from a lot of different scriptures from all over the place, and some of this today might honestly seem a little bit heady. It might feel a little bit more like a lecture than a sermon, but I want you to hang with me in spite of that, because here's why. I believe that if we have confidence in the future, it will enable us to live with faithfulness in the present. Let me say that one more time. If we have confidence in the future, we'll be able to live with faithfulness here in the present. So let's dive in. What happens after we die? 
First thing is this. The first thing the Bible says is that we go to a kind of intermediate state. That This is not our final resting place. It's not the final heaven or hell, but it's this disembodied intermediate state where our spirit leaves our body and goes to this place. And here's a few things that we know. The Bible doesn't give us everything about the intermediate state, but it does give us some handles that we can grab onto about it. And the first one is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, the intermediate state is better than this life. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter one, I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, the intermediate state is better than this life. And it's because you get to be with Jesus. Uh, He says in 2 Corinthians chapter five, that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. So it's better than this life. You're with Jesus. And John also says in Revelation chapter 14, that it is a state of rest. Steve preached on this text a few weeks ago. Revelation 14 verse 13 says, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. So we've seen this intermediate state is this conscious state where our spirits leave our bodies, they go to be with Jesus and it is way better than this life here on earth. But it's not our forever state. Our forever state, we're actually gonna get real physical flesh and blood bodies back. So, so what happens after the intermediate state? That leaves us, of course, with our main text for the day, Revelation chapter 20. Like Steve mentioned, we've been going through this series where we're walking through the seven blessings that we get in the book of Revelation. And the fifth blessing today happens to fall in Revelation chapter 20, verses one through six, which is the most hotly contested passage in the entire Bible. So it's gonna be fun today, all right? Um, Actually, I heard a true story of a young preacher in Ohio who was teaching through Revelation. And when he got finished, somebody shot him. So don't shoot the messenger, okay? That's the, that's the first point for today. Like, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it, all right? So hang with me. But that being said, we're gonna dive in. Now, in any text in scripture, it's always important to read the Bible in context. That means when you're reading a chunk of verses, you wanna read what comes before and what comes after so we can have the whole picture. So right before Revelation chapter 20, in chapter 19, we see John who witnesses Jesus on the last day, Jesus overthrows all the armies of the evil one. And then after that, here's what John says in Revelation chapter 20, verses one through six. He says, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who's the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who'd been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And here it is, here's the blessing, don't miss this. He says, blessed. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. This is God's word and all God's people said, 
Amen. All right, now, if you are new with us here this morning, or maybe you're brand new to church today, you might be thinking right now, what in the world have I gotten myself into? Did I walk into some weird Lord of the Rings fan club? What is going on here, right? Well, breathe easy, because if you can stick with us through Revelation chapter 20, the rest of this is gonna be a cakewalk, all right? So we're starting, starting in the deep end. Here we go, okay? Now, as we talk about this, we have to acknowledge there's a lot of different opinions on this text. There's a lot of different opinions on things like the end times. And so before we wade in, we have to acknowledge the fact that there are some things that are like first order issues of doctrine, that it's, it's really important that we see eye to eye on these things, that we all agree we're on the same page, because if we're not, then we, we can't really call each other Christian brothers and sisters. And these are things like the fact that Jesus is the son of God who came and lived a perfect life and died for the sins of the world, and that he really physically rose from the dead, and that now, by putting your faith in him, that's the only way to God. That's the only way to get eternal life. Now, if we don't see eye to eye on those things, then we can't call each other Christian brother and sister. Those kinds of first order issues of doctrine are worth dividing over. But then, a step back from that, there's these second order issues of doctrine, which are still important. Like, it's good for us to figure out what the Bible teaches about these things, to develop an informed opinion, because it does shape the way that we live out our faith. And yet, these second order issues of doctrine are not really worth dividing over. They're not tests of fellowship. And Revelation chapter 20, things about the end times, that falls into that category. You and I can disagree on this kind of thing, and we can still call each other Christian brothers and sisters. Because listen, like if Jesus comes back and I find out that I'm wrong about my particular interpretation of how I thought it was gonna happen, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna high five everybody who was right and then I'm gonna get back to what's really important, worshiping Jesus. That's the most important thing, all right? So if you and I don't see eye to eye on this, I'm pretty sure we can agree on the fact that at the end of the day, Jesus wins and the devil takes an eternal swim in the lake of fire. We all on the same page? All right, okay, all right, good, good. We'll, we'll dive in from there then. Now, it's not like this stuff doesn't matter. It does matter, because remember, when we have confidence about the future, it enables us to live with faithfulness here in the present. Now, that being said, there are two main views on what's happening here in this text in Revelation chapter 20. View number one, hope you guys can see my artwork. Don't make fun of me. My handwriting's terrible, okay? Never pass penmanship. Uh, view number one says this. View number one says that at Jesus, he came in his first coming, and he did the things we believe he did, right? He, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and now we follow him, and we are the church. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up, ta-da. Okay, there's the church, okay? And, and this is the age we're living in right now, and that eventually Jesus is going to come back at his second coming. And at Jesus' second coming, he's going to kickstart this thousand-year reign that we just read about, that Jesus is literally, physically going to rule his kingdom here on the earth, set up a physical rule here on the earth for a literal 1,000 years, literally 365,000 days. And during that time, he's gonna bind the devil, he's gonna chuck the devil into the abyss, and as Jesus rules his kingdom here on earth with us, his people, it's gonna be a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity until at the end of that 1,000 years, Satan's gonna be released, he's gonna go gather his armies and try to overthrow the kingdom of Jesus, of course, he's going to lose. So then Jesus is gonna chuck him into the lake of fire and kick off eternity in both heaven and hell. This is the first view and it's called premillennialism. That's a big word. But premillennial, basically just saying that Jesus is going to come back pre the millennium, before the thousand years. Now, there are a lot of different flavors of premillennialism. 
On the one hand, there's something called historic premillennialism, which has some really solid biblical basis. And then there's something called dispensational premillennialism. We are not gonna have time to get into all that today, but again, if you wanna dive in deeper, sign up for Equip You, okay? But dispensational premillennialism is where ideas like the rapture come from. We don't have time to dig into this, but listen to me. The rapture is not in the Bible, okay? It's not scriptural, not gonna happen. If you have questions about that, email Steve. He loves them, I promise, okay? All right. But I, I'm serious. I, I, I know this is something that's been taught, popular culture, Nick, Nicholas Cage, the whole nine yards, right, okay? Don't believe Nicholas Cage for your theology, just general rule of thumb, all right? So, uh, but we would love to talk with you about this. I'm serious, though. Reach out to us. We love walking with people through scriptures. So if you have questions, please dig in with us. But this is view number one. It's called premillennialism. Here is view number two of what's happening in this text. Whoops, need a new marker. View number two here in this text says that in Jesus's first coming, actually then, that's when he kickstarted the thousand year reign that we read about here in Revelation chapter 20. Which means that like when Jesus came and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead, like that actually did something to the devil. That when Jesus died on the cross, he took away the power of sin, guilt, and shame. And when he rose from the dead, he took away the power of death. Satan no longer holds the keys to death. Jesus holds them now because he won them in the cross and on the resurrection. Satan was bound. He doesn't have all the same weapons he used to anymore. The dude's a lion on a leash. He can't do what he used to be able to do because Jesus bound him in his death and resurrection. And so right now, we're actually still living in the thousand year reign, in the church age, and that we are the people of God, empowered by the spirit of God, and as we live out the work of God and hold tight to the word of God, the kingdom of darkness is pushed back, and he can't deceive the world like he used to. Satan doesn't have all the weapons that he used to have because Jesus is right now reigning on high in his throne on heaven. Now, someday, Jesus is gonna come back in his second coming, And when he does, then he's gonna throw the devil into the lake of fire. Everybody's gonna be raised, face judgment, and eternity will begin. Now, this is what's called amillennialism, which means that we believe we're living in the thousand-year reign right now. Now, some of you are thinking, listen, preacher, they must not have taught math at Bible college, right? Because it's been a little more than a thousand years since this all happened, okay? Well, yeah, we interpret this thousand years as symbolic. And here's why. Because also when you read your Bible, you have to take into account the genre. You guys know this, if you're reading like poetry, you don't take every little detail literally, right? It's figures of speech. And it's similar when you're reading apocalyptic literature. Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That means that there's a bunch of pictures and numbers and colors and smells and sounds, and we don't take them all at face value We dig deeper than that. You don't actually just physically measure out the numbers for their literal numerical length. You weigh the numbers. What's that number trying to communicate? This is how Jews would have thought about this. So we believe the thousand years, like every other number in Revelation, is symbolic. It just means a really long time, okay? That's what it means, all right? And this is our conviction as a church, our church leadership. We we are are an all-millennial church. Now, that being said, there's a ton of people who are way smarter than me on both sides of this debate. So again, this is not something worth dividing over. If you disagree with me on this, that is okay. We have freedom in Christ. You are allowed to be wrong. (laughs) We're probably not gonna know how to settle this debate until Jesus gets back, as if we're still gonna care by then, right? So, So half of you I know right now are like figuring out the emails you're gonna write later on, and the other half of you have fallen asleep. So everybody, everybody, tune back in here with me right now, okay? Here's what's important. We don't wanna get sucked into the minutia here. 
Because we have to keep in mind who John is writing to. Anytime we read the Bible, we have to remember this is a real author writing to real people. Who's writing this and who are they writing to? John did not write, did not write Revelation so that 21st century Americans could speculate about the exact timeline of the end of the world. John wrote Revelation to seven little fledgling churches trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in a hostile world in the middle of the Roman Empire. This text was written to people in suffering. And so we have to ask, what did it mean to those people? What does it mean today to people in suffering? How would a Chinese mother read this text after her son has just been martyred for sharing the good news of Jesus? How would a Muslim woman in Libya read this text knowing that if she gets baptized, her family's gonna ostracize her? How should a high school sophomore read this text knowing that if she takes a biblical stance on gender and sexuality, she's gonna lose friends and she might not get into the college she wants to go to. She might not get the career she wants. How should a grieving husband read this text when he's just lost his wife to cancer? I can promise you this. When the people in suffering read this text, I don't think they were too worried about the timeline. I think when that Chinese mother reads this text, she can read it rejoicing because while Satan may be ravaging them right now, his reign of terror is brief, he is bound, and soon he will be destroyed. I think that Libyan woman can read this text and be given the courage to obey because she sees in this chapter that God still has his hand on the rudder of history and he is steering it toward justice. And a day is coming when the full wrath of God is going to be unleashed on the evil that has been wreaking havoc on the people that he loves. I think that high school sophomore can read this text and she can know that standing on the word of God may not win her a popularity contest in this life, but it will spare her from the eternal torment of hell that is too dark for words in the next life and it will seal her for the eternal bliss of heaven that is more beautiful than she could possibly imagine. And I think that grieving husband can read this text knowing that Jesus says, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who have died in the Lord. That everybody we know and love who has died while a follower of Jesus, they are right now, they've experienced this spiritual first resurrection, that they are right now at rest and reigning with him, safe from judgment and at home with their maker. That's what we get from this text, it's hope. So in, in light of all this, in light of all this, I have two action steps for you today. And here's the first one. In light of this text, die well. Die well. Can you tell I have the spiritual gift of encouragement? <laughs> I, I know this isn't comfortable to talk about, but there's a lot of people in the room right now. And so just statistically speaking, like for some of us, the odds are that this might be our last year. I don't know, it could be for me. None of us know how much time we're gonna get. But as Christians, we don't have to fear death like the world does. We think about our lives differently. We think about death differently as Christians. We think about even things like risk and danger differently. We don't live in constant anxiety about our own mortality like the world does. We die well. Um, my grandpa's my hero. He lives about an hour south of here in Trafalgar and he's been fighting cancer um, on and off for the past couple of years. And a few months ago, they got some hard news and they were at our house after they found out and my grandpa sat across the dining table from me and he looked me in the eyes. He said, Luke, I wanna show you how to live in the face of death. 
and I want to show you how a Christian man dies. <laughs> That's what we get from Revelation 20. And I don't know when your time's going to come. I don't know when mine's going to come. I hope it's many years from now. But when it comes, let's die well. Because we don't think about it like the world does. We're different. So we've spent a lot of time so far uh, talking about these present realities, right? That we're, we're living in the thousand year reign of Jesus right now, that those who have already died um, in Christ are with him, risen and reigning, spiritual resurrection, and that the devil right now has been bound by Jesus' death and resurrection. And eventually Jesus is gonna come back and make all things new. So let's turn our attention to the future a little bit here for the, our next few minutes together. What's gonna happen at the end of time? What's gonna happen? Well, I don't know how it all is exactly gonna play out, but we know some big things that scripture gives us. And the first one is this, Jesus is gonna come back. The New Testament talks over 250 times about the second coming of Jesus. Here's a few big things we know about it for sure. The first one is this, nobody knows when it'll happen. Now, Paul says this in second, or excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, now brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. None of us know when it's gonna happen. That's the first thing. Second thing we know is this, he's gonna come in the sky. Um, in Acts chapter one, verse 11, this is after Jesus has died, he has risen from the dead, and then he's with his followers and he just, Jesus just ascends up into heaven. He like flies up into the clouds and his followers are left there just gawking up into the sky. And these two angels show up and they say this. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's like, duh, like, why, why wouldn't I be? You know, like, and, and, but they say, this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So nobody knows when Jesus is gonna come back. He's gonna come back in the sky. Third thing is this, it will be unmistakable when he does. You're not gonna be wondering whether or not you've been left behind. <laughs> You're not gonna be wondering if you missed it. Revelation chapter one, verse seven says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. We could go on and on about this, but the bottom line is this, Jesus is coming back. It could be today. One of the things I love about uh, living with little kids is that every now and then uh, Judah, our four-year-old, will just ask us, hey, is Jesus coming back today? <laughs> I don't know, buddy, hadn't thought about it. <laughs> but man, like, I wanna live with that sense of anticipation and urgency that it's a very present reality. Uh, the late Billy Graham tells a story of a golf outing he had one time with President John F. Kennedy. And Kennedy was a Roman Catholic and as they're golfing, Kennedy just asked him if he believed in the second coming. And Billy Graham said that he did. And Kennedy said, well, well does, does my church believe in it? And Billy Graham went on to explain it. Yeah, it's, it's in the creeds of the Catholic church. And Kennedy said, well, they, they don't preach it. They don't tell us much about it. I'd, I'd like to know what you think. And so Billy Graham walked him through a little bit of what the Bible says about the return of Jesus. And Kennedy replied, well, that's, that's really interesting. You've given me a lot to think about. I'd like to talk more about that sometime. Here's how Billy Graham concludes this story. He says, the last time I was with Kennedy was at the 1963 National Prayer Breakfast. I had the flu after we both gave our talks, we walked out of the hotel to his car together. At the curb, he turned to me and said, Billy, could you ride back to the White House with me? I'd like to talk with you for a minute. I protested, oh, Mr. President, I've, I've got a fever. I don't wanna give you this thing. Couldn't we wait and talk some other time? It was a cold, snowy day. I was freezing as I stood there without my overcoat. Of course, he said graciously. 
But then came November 22nd, 1963, and Billy Graham never saw President Kennedy alive again. Reflecting back on that interaction, Billy Graham writes, his hesitation at the car door and his request haunt me still. What was on his mind? Should I have gone with him? It was an irrecoverable moment. Listen, friends, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, there won't be any more second chances. Because here's what's gonna happen. When, when Jesus comes back, the next major event will be the resurrection of all people. Everyone will be raised. Everybody who has ever lived and died will rise from the dead. Paul says in Acts chapter 24, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And the purpose of this resurrection is that so that everyone who's ever lived can stand before God and face judgment. Now, Jesus himself talks about this in John chapter five. He says, do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done what is good will rise to live. And those who've done what is evil will rise to be condemned. And so the timeline of the last day is pretty simple, really. Jesus is gonna come back, everyone's gonna be raised, and then we're all gonna face judgment. And we see this here in Revelation chapter 20, our text, in verses 11 through 15, John says this. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The, jed, the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's gonna come a day when everyone who's ever lived will stand before God and give an account of their life. And when that happens, John says books are gonna be open, these books that contain a record of everything that we have done. But then he says there's gonna be another book that's opened called the Lamb's Book of Life. The Lamb's Book of Life records the names of everyone who has put their trust in Jesus in this life. Everyone who has surrendered to him, been baptized into him, placed their faith in him, and followed him here in this life will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. My name is in that book. And so someday, when I stand before the righteous judge of the universe, I know that I deserve hell. But God's gonna look at my name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he's gonna say, come on in. Yeah, your sins are many, but my mercy is more because you are covered in the blood of my son. For the rest of this year together, we're gonna get to look more at heaven and I'm really excited about that. But before we get there, today we have to end by looking at the reality of judgment and hell. Because if there was nothing that we needed saving from, we wouldn't really need a savior. But we believe the reality that for those who refuse to surrender to Jesus in this life, they will be separated from Jesus in the next life and right, rightfully condemned to an eternity in hell apart from him. And this is hard, isn't it? This is uncomfortable. It, it makes us squirm. Because we think of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? White robe, blue sash, kids on his lap. But actually, Jesus talks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. 
And Jesus says that hell is the natural extension. It is the righteous result of God's justice. And Jesus says that hell is a real place and that it is forever. And that hell is a place of physical suffering and spiritual ruin and relational abandonment. But he also says that it's not mandatory. (laughs) You don't have to go there. In fact, there's gonna be nobody in hell who has not chosen to be there. Romans chapter two says, we're all without excuse. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, it is opened. So here's action step number two for you. Spread the news. Spread the news. You got your steel-toed boots on today? All right. If we are still too scared to tell our friends about what we believe, if, if we're too nervous to share our convictions with them or even warn them that they are headed to an eternity apart from Jesus, then that reveals one or two things. On the one hand, it could reveal that we are functional universalists. That yeah, we believe in hell in theory, but when the rubber meets the road, we don't actually think that's true. Or it reveals that we don't actually love those people. Like we don't actually care enough about those people to tell them. And that's hard. In the year 1854, there was a man by the name of Charlie Peace. He was a well-known criminal in London and he was hung. And as he was being marched to the gallows, a priest read these words aloud from the prayer book. He said, those who die without Christ experience hell, which is the pain of forever dying without the release that death itself can bring. And as those haunting words were being read, Charlie Peace stopped dead in his tracks and he turned to the priest and he shouted in his face, do you believe that? Do you believe that? And the the, the priest was surprised, caught off guard, so he kind of stuttered for a moment, but he said, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I guess I do. And Charlie Peace said, well, I don't. But if I did, I would get down on my hands and knees and I would crawl all over Great Britain even if it were paved with pieces of broken glass if I could spare even one person from what you just read to me. This is hard, church. It's not easy and it makes us squirm. But the fact that we believe in the reality of hell for those who do not follow Jesus makes me determined to keep as many people from that fate as possible. As the old preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. I told you a couple months ago about my one challenge guy for the year, my good friend who died really suddenly. And to be honest, I didn't take advantage of as many of the opportunities with him as I should have. It's not a very good feeling and I don't want it for you because we know that it's not the good people who go to heaven and the bad people who go to hell. There are no good people. There are only those who have surrendered to Jesus and those who've not. So if you're here today and you have not surrendered to Jesus, if you're watching online and you have not yet surrendered to Jesus, please, please, please don't put it off. 
come talk to us. We're gonna be here after the service or, or you can talk to your group leader, talk to a friend here. You can always go to mypcc.info, tap on the baptism tab. We would love to walk through this with you. This is far too important to put off, please. But if you have surrendered to Jesus, then I think the natural response today is to take communion together. And I'm gonna pray here in a minute and then I'll give you a few moments and you can take the bread on your own, this bread that represents the body of Jesus that was pierced for you. And then together we will take the juice that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out so that we could be washed clean. So in the couple minutes of silence that we give you, just tell Jesus thank you for sparing you from the judgment that you deserve and tell him you're looking forward to him returning. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, for even tough texts like this that do give us confidence for the future so that we can live with faithfulness in the present. Of course, we know, Jesus, that uh, if it were up to us and how good we are or what we have done, we would have no confidence in the future. We know what we deserve. And yet because of how good you are and because of what you have done, you have given us the confidence of knowing that while we were yet sinners, you came and you died for us. You took all my junk and you gave me your righteousness instead. You took my shame and gave me your peace. You took my guilt and you gave me your hope. You took my death so that I could have your life. Thank you, Jesus. Give us people to tell. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.